I was first introduced to Vitalik as the founder of Ethereum, and over the course of a few years, I've gotten to know that there is so much more to him. Today, we go on a walk to show you those other sides. On our walk, we talk about everything from decentralized finance to Wall Street bets, Dogecoin, China, revolt of the public, a whole list of topics. I'm Morgan Beller, and this is my first NFX podcast. We've walked three continents together, and I hope to walk many more. You're Russian, you're Canadian, you're currently walking around Singapore, and you work a lot with Americans. And Americans generally seem to think in a fairly fairly American-centric way. But at the same time, the world is becoming more Americanized in some ways. So I'm curious, like both from looking from the inside out and looking from the outside in, what do you observe, if anything, in the American psyche that you don't think Americans realize about themselves? There's there's definitely differences between the uh, United States and like many other places in the world, though a lot of the time those differences aren't even what Americans themselves think. Like, just one random example of this, right? This this could also just be my Canadian prejudices, but I just uh, remember growing up like 10 years ago, my uh, kind of view of the United States is that it's this, uh, you know, horrible materialist, capitalist, white supremacist place where uh, people eat burgers and fries all day. I spent some time in America, I spent some time in Europe, spent some time in China, spent some time in uh, plenty of other places. And it just, it does actually kind of become more and more clear that, uh, you know, there's a lot of places that are significantly worse than the U.S. on each one of those dimensions. And there's plenty of parts in the world that are more materialistic um, than uh, the U.S. is. Um, and there's plenty of uh, places that have like less of the depth of, uh, you know, oh, we should try to be altruistic and kind of try to benefit humanity and uh, those kinds of things. So... Even you can even see some of these things in the crypto space, right? So, like uh, one example of this would be uh, just um, comparing like U.S.-based crypto projects to some of the A- Asian crypto projects to some of the European crypto projects. Like the crypto space is this strange mix of a kind of very idealistic, you know, open and decentralized the world stuff to just hey, let's trade and gamble and make money, um, and the the places that dominate on the trade and gamble and make money access are not the U.S. So the and the concept of just even, you know, things like let's support open source for the sake of open source, uh, just to give one example, like that's definitely one of those things where that's uh, stronger in like both the U.S. and Europe than um, a lot of other places. And like the reason why I say that kind of cut it cuts across narratives a bit is because, like the U.S. is, or maybe the, maybe the U.S. left story of the U.S. is that the U.S. is like very big on like selfishness and individualism, and not big on kind of caring about other people. But like open source software is like the exact opposite of selfishness and individualism in so many ways. And um, you know the in the U.S. and Europe, like from my own observation, are probably two of its. Uh, strongest epicenters. So, I mean, that's just like one example of many interesting things and contradictions. How do you define religion? Both what is religion and what is the smallest unit that can still be defined as religion? 
religion itself is definitely a kind of bundle of a few things, right? Like there is like a set of beliefs. There's some notion of like, some kind of mental and spiritual practice. There's uh, some notion of social connection, uh, and these things all uh, kind of get tied together. Uh, there's all also often some kind of moral code that gets attached um, whether that that moral code is like kind of personal virtue and how you treat yourself or interpersonal virtue and uh, how you treat other people and so you know there's this uh, kind of big collection of uh, things that are kind of tied together and, and uh, influence each other uh, and we're definitely i think uh, starting to uh, kind of enter a uh, a world where those uh, things uh, start kind of coming apart and you start have kind of some of those pieces appearing without other pieces. Uh, so like even already just the, you know, the idea that there kind of is literally a man in the sky who created the world. Um, know, was it 6,024 years ago? I can't, I can't remember. Actually, no, it's 6,025 now. Sorry. I mean, it's, uh, because it is definitely and significantly less popular than uh, it was a uh, it was a hundred years ago, um, but at the same time, you know the demand for the yeah, kind of not literally belief related factors is is still quite strong and it's still there. Um, so you know you have things like I don't know like yoga and meditation and uh, kind of this. Uh, attempts to explore all of these kind of Asian enlightenment concepts. That's uh, a form of spirituality without really having an epistemology attached to it. Um, there's uh, obvious, there's just secular morality. Um, so it, like a lot of the kind of secular moralisms um, that uh, we, we talked about before are like people uh, have made the case and I'm definitely and if too far from Christian communities to be able to confirm and deny the case, but people have made the case uh, that those um, ideas are descendants of uh, kind of more moralisms that that have been part of uh, Christianity um, around kind of loving your the poor and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy and all of these things for uh, thousands of years. Um, and then, as far as just kind of creating communities between people, well, the uh, kind of internet is. Uh, supercharged that, but also changed the nature of that in a lot of ways, right? Like you have fewer of these, um, kind of some closer connections where you, uh, just meet people like once a week or just regularly in person. And then more of these just very loose connections where you just know someone by their username. And you know, that, that kind of connection has, uh, like different properties. Uh, so, so what, what is replacing for religion for you and and you know your tribe? I think like a lot of things uh, kind of simultaneously are replacing religion. Uh, some of them are kind of more healthy than others. Like uh, there's definitely uh, kind of some of these uh, quote political religions that are starting to come out lately, uh, and. Uh, you know, like there's different name, there's different names for the various political religions. Like uh, there's uh, um, civic nationalism, there's wokeism, there's you know this big long list. Yeah, so so there's internet communities. Uh, so I'm not going to go into that example, uh, but uh, other aside from that example, 
example of which I dare not. There's uh, in all sorts of subreddits. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, just like various things happening in various dark quarters of the internet. My religion don't satisfy all of the functions of uh, religion. They do provide some things. Um, but like, and they, they, they do provide kind of some kind of community aspects, though they provide it in a different form. And do you think subreddits count as religions? Is Wall Street Bets a religion of sorts? Um, are you familiar with uh, the book uh, Revolt of the Public by uh, Martin Gurry? It's a yeah, book by a former uh, CIA analyst, I believe. And uh, it uh, goes through with some of the kind of revolutions uh, in the Middle East uh, that we saw kind of five to 15 years ago. Uh, Barack Obama uh, kind of... The book was written before Donald Trump, and Donald Trump just like plays into it so perfectly. Uh, and like it's it's uh, you know f- discusses what is the common theme between all of these uh, events, and the common theme is basically that like the internet and social media are empowering direct uh, decentralized coordination, uh, and at just a much more powerful scale than uh, was possible before and so so basically uh, elites that were able to uh, maintain control during previous uh, eras are just having a a much harder time of uh, of doing that just because of this uh, of this sudden technological shock and the people who are not elites that have just various grievances with the things that the elites are doing are basically just using this new platform to revolt uh, and the way that I'm seeing Wall Street bets is basically uh, revolts of the public uh, comes to the stock market, right? So if you think about the stock market, one of these big defining events in uh, a lot of these people's lives is the 2008 great financial crisis, right? Where uh, you know, financial institutions, governments, and like a lot of that powerful actors made some uh, very big mistakes. Uh, and I mean, Mistakes is even into kind of two kinds of word for it. They uh, kind of acted in ways that maximized their profits uh, without uh, without much concern for the um, fallout that um, that could happen, not just to them but also to everyone else. In the uh, in the case of the big risks, and uh, a lot of people were then very angry about this, and I don't think anyone really forgot. Uh, and a lot of people feel that. Like basically, they got off easy, right? That they yeah, weren't punished uh, for what they uh, what they did before two thousand and seven hard enough. Um, that you know, although almost uh, no no one or even no one uh, kind of went to jail in uh, two thousand nine and two thousand and ten. The banks are mostly all still intact and they're still doing really well. Uh, and like people, uh, just lots of people feel like the financial industry just hasn't uh, learned learned their lesson. Uh, And they feel like they're just continuing to play all sorts of complicated games and just kind of manipulate and participate in this uh, rigged financial system that's just designed to screw over the little guy, essentially. And what happened with GameStop was basically that, well, at the beginning, you know, you have these redditors, and they uh, started buying up this uh, stock that uh, had a lot of people shorting it, and they just thought that you know, hey, this company is this it's a nice little ga- ga- gaming uh, company. It deserves to survive and have a chance. And like, how dare these bankers like basically just try to kill it? Uh, and then 
as the price went up, it just kind of evolved and uh, grew stronger. Uh, and it uh, you know, shot up uh, much higher than I think anyone or almost uh, anyone even expected at the time. Uh, and uh, that was like, you know, it just uh, kind of turned into this uh, kind of much more powerful kind of symbol, uh, symbolic thing that basically, well, and it became even more powerful and uh, symbolic once all of this uh, uh, kind of Robin Hood stuff started happening, right? Like when uh, people like stopped being able to trade, um, when, uh, then uh, basically, there were, and especially when some of the kind of uh, media pieces uh, from, you know, the Wall Street uh, Journal and all of these kind of financial uh, organizations started coming out, basically, um, it's blaming the kind of Reddit market manipulators for screwing around with the market. And the public response was like, dude, you've been screwing around with the market since forever. How, you know, how dare you um, blame us for doing, uh, for doing the thing that you really do as your, uh, as your source of profit every single year. Um, and uh, I don't know, that, like, and, no, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that, right? Like I think, I, like I definitely don't buy the extreme story that says that short selling is a kind of fundamentally illegitimate as a concept, right? Like I think, uh, you know, short selling is to financial markets what criticism is to free speech. You know, you can't have a, a speech uh, ecosystem without criticism. You can't have a financial uh, ecosystem without being able to bet against things. But at the same time, like, you know, it is true that there are a lot of these systems that have kind of multiple equilibria and there's a lot of people even in the traditional financial space to get rid of kind of attacking these systems and using big piles of money that ordinary people would never have access to to just force a system from one equilibrium to another and to profit as a result and you know they've been doing this since forever and now that a group of uh, kind of random anonymous millennial redditors are doing it they, yeah, they're upset and uh, you know nobody's buying it uh, I, don't know, I, I think there's uh, kind of a lot of things that are very beautiful about that i think yeah it's definitely kind of just interesting because it does kind of just bring back front and center all of these uh, issues about the financial system that we've uh, really people have been talking about to some extent for 12 years but now it's kind uh, of just all coming back and as for what will come of this uh yeah how do you think the financial industry will be impacted beyond you know some hedge funds lost some money you talked about you think gamestop will be effective but do you think any changes will actually happen regulatory i, I definitely think there's going to be uh, some kind of uh reforms of uh just how stock markets work and how trading works like uh even just the whole concept of like delayed settlements uh, where you know every, like when you buy a stock you don't actually have the stock until two days in the future and uh, for those two days the company basically or whatever broker you're trading through provides some amount of capital ahead of time and they have to have a float that's proportional to some estimate of the yeah, volatility or whatever like that whole scheme is definitely going to be looked at again i i mean like it's time to switch to instant settlement which uh, i thought was fascinating like yeah uh, and i definitely hope that we see some experiments in that direction i mean on the other hand i know that you know there's kind of the the stodgy old defenders of uh, the t plus two approach that talk about the benefits of capital efficiency um and uh, just uh, 
fix some of those uh, kind of from having delayed settlement and just allowing whatever uh, kind of conflicting trades happen within that time period to cancel each other out without needing to move any stock at all. But at the same time, like uh, I'm not sure that uh, the millennials value kind of financial efficiency that highly. I wanted to bring up I wanted to bring up Uniswap, but uh, speaking very abstractly, right? Like the idea is that instead of having an order book exchange, you have this uh, kind of automated thing that just is like a curve. Um, you know, the the famous X times Y equals K curve, and you you can buy and sell against this curve by kind of moving along the curve, and then whatever amount tag you move left is uh, the amount of tokens of the type you give up, and then the amount you move up is the amount of tokens of the other type that you get. And it's this fully kind of just automated, incredibly simple construct. And theoretically, there's a lot of these uh, kind of very good reasons for why it should be much less efficient than a traditional order book exchanges. And yet it's been much more successful than uh, traditional order book exchanges. Uh, so like efficiency in a kind of idealized financial models is definitely not the only thing that brings success. And so I do wonder, like, is there some that um, you know to hell with whatever inefficiencies that introduces because you know t plus zero just is right and just or like I don't know we'll see so I I, I do wonder if um, you know just like in the, this example of Uniswap we're just going to see much more examples of uh, people trying out uh, t plus zero instant settlement in a lot of different contexts and liking T plus zero settlements in a lot of instant contexts, uh, in a lot of different contexts, and just like to hell with the financial inefficiencies that it brings because it just like makes more intuitive sense. Uh, so there's definitely also a yeah, kind of broader cultural trend here, I think, which is like, it definitely does feel like a kind of changing of the guard moments, right? Like, uh, it. Um, you know, you see these uh, kind of articles from the uh, mainstream uh, mainstream financial media that are uh, kind of, you know, defending short sellers and hedge funds and talking about how terrible the say a GameStop mob is, and you know, comparing them to the uh, 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 Trump supporters that uh, so uh, uh, joyfully um, entered uh, your capital a few weeks ago, um, and uh, it just. Uh, I don't think these people realize just the extent to which they're just so perfectly fitting into that uh, kind of tired old guard that just doesn't get the way um, uh, that the world has uh, changed and things work difficult differently now vibe, right? Like there's, uh, it, it feels like, um, you know, the kind of younger generation just has different ways of looking at financial markets. Um, there is less of this kind of expectation that markets are supposed to work like some kind of uh, you know really well-oiled, highly efficient, uh, efficient machine where you know everybody is really serious and uh, there's these. If people follow these rules, then it does like perfect price discovery or anything like that. I think uh, you know millennials are just more inclined to say, oh, you know, financial markets are a complete joke already, so let's just get in on the joke, uh, and. I think that's, uh, you know, to a large extent, that's inevitable. Uh, and there is, of course, the challenging question of, like, you know, if uh, financial markets are going to be more chaotic and if things like uh, GameStop and Tesla are going to be more the norm than the exception going forward, then, you know, what does that mean for kind of the world and the economy as a whole? Any predictions or any thoughts on what or how 
financial markets may might or should be restructured as a result of this? I generally am a fan of the approach that just says, well, you know, the markets are just going to be what they are. And there's, it's not clear that there's all that much that you can, uh, that you can do about it without risking making things worse. Um, and so the thing that we should focus on is uh, making sure that people's lives are uh, doing well, regardless of uh, where the market sits at any particular point in time. One thing that is affecting the whole world, like UBI and healthcare and other topics you mentioned, but that is currently being decided on by local jurisdictions is the COVID vaccine. And there's this interesting, or what I find interesting, concept of challenge trials. So the COVID vaccine like introduced this idea of challenge trials to most people for the first time. You know, the idea that you waive your liability rights by volunteering to get the vaccine early, and you're waiving your rights in exchange for hoping this vaccine saves your life, hoping this vaccine saves other lives, and hoping to, if you're thinking on behalf of the greater good, that it expedites the testing and data collection and you know saves the world. What are other areas in modern life that you think we should have challenge trials for? Like, I think um, one of the big uh, kind of problems with uh, medical ethics uh, that I personally really dislike is like a um, hundred people dying of medical experiments gone wrong is uh, a tragedy, but a million people uh, dying because uh, a treatment came a year uh, later than it otherwise would as a statistic. Uh, and like the, the just the way that uh, kind of medical ethics in particular is like structured is like the whole thing is basically turned around like you know don't be like the Tuskegee experiments and don't be like Hitler and don't be like him and all, all of these kind of nasty examples and just because of like scope and sensitivity which is a universal human fallacy there is definitely not really this appreciation of a kind of need for speed as a humanitarian end in itself. Like need for speed is kind of just perceived as a, uh, you know, reckless human, uh, reckless Silicon Valley prejudice perhaps. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that things, um, innovations happening earlier rather than later just like, you know, really does improve a, a lot of people's lives and is just a strong social good is still something that's underappreciated and COVID feels like it's starting to change that, right? Like, uh, like I definitely think that, you know, the, the challenge trials and the vaccines were both like approved and started like far um, later than they actually should have been. Um, but, you know, after this uh, experience, I definitely think that people are going to be more willing and more inclined to just start things earlier because COVID really does make clear that, you know, waiting has a cost, right? Like, Every month of waiting costs 400 or whatever number of uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. Every month of waiting uh, continues debilitating the economy. Every month of waiting continues uh, destabilizing political systems. Um, and so if we can just like solve things technologically with uh, vaccines, then like the earlier we do that, like basically every month of earliness uh, in uh, the solution is just such a large uh, humanitarian gain. And I, I, I'm definitely hoping that that spirit can be applied to kind of a lot of other spheres. Um, um, going outside of kind of the medical um, examples, one other thing that would be interesting to just consider is uh, the idea of kind of 
more experimental jurisdictions. So basically places where, you know, if you go and live to that place, that's, that's considered as explicitly signing a contract that says that you're okay with uh, basically living in a place where a lot of new stuff gets tried and there's uh, certain kinds of higher risks. Uh, so you know, one example of this might be like drone food delivery, which uh, is something that, you know, if it can be made to work will just, uh, you know, solve so many issues. It would just uh, like get rid of traffic jams or at least significantly alleviate traffic jams. Um, it would, uh, you know, significantly alleviate a lot of environmental issues, uh, just re reduce costs, make life better for poor people in a lot of ways. Um, Self-driving cars might be another one of those examples. Um, you know, just like a thousand little things and just trying to more rapidly kind of iterate and uh, experiment on the urban environment. So, you know, can we have a city where if you move to the city, then, you know, you are like basically human challenge trialing self-driving cars and delivery drones. I don't know, I think that would be really cool. Well, I cannot wait to live in an experimental jurisdiction in 3021 with you where biology is our president and we are eating plant-based diets that will be delivered to us <laughs> by drones. <laughs> or I guess we won't be eating by then, who knows? There'll be tubes in us or something like that. What is something that you think is truly widely accepted today that people will either realize is wrong or will be less widely accepted in two years, in five years, in 20 years, and in 100 years. And I think the different timescales like illuminate different factors. So, I mean, I guess speaking of uh, believing in God, apparently in 2021, the really cool thing is believing in dog. Like, have you seen the Dogecoin prices? Our relationship to a kind of physical location is definitely going to kind of continue to change. Um, I like our, our relationship to nationality is going to like, considerably change as a, as a result of this as well. Um, like just the concept of, um, you know, if you're not happy, not happy in a place or you feel like your rights are being infringed in a particular place, then like, you know, why fight it? Just like go to a place that um, uh, satisfies your values better is, um, one of those things that I think is, uh, gonna, we're going to start kind of seeing more and more of um our this is a scary one our relationship to privacy is going to change significantly and uh, kind of very uh, drastically just because like in some spheres the right uh, the uh the ability to communicate privately still exists right like you have all of these encrypted chats and encrypted text and all of these but like the level of in-person privacy that um we have is lower than it has been in pretty much any point in history, right? Like uh, in a few decades, we're going to be like, you know, forget about, um, you know, that like China being able to surveil the movements of its own people or the US being able to surveil the movements of its own people. Like you'll be able to have China be able to surveil the movements of US people and the US being able to surveil the movements of Chinese people just because, uh, you know, resolution from satellites is going to be, uh, is going to be powerful enough to do that sort of thing. And um, so, you know, what will geopolitics look like in that kind of world is uh, one of those kind of challenging questions that uh, is uh, going to be interesting. Um, our relationship to just the concept of how we form groups and tribes is definitely going to just change massively, though I'm 
not exactly sure how. Um, another fascinating one, I think, is that our, like, there's the concept of being immutable, right? Like, right, even up to this mindset where there's a thing which is human nature and human nature is immutable, and then there's kind of layers that you can wrap on top around nature, whether it's education, whether it's tools, um, whether it's, um, you know, having a phone that you can use to Google stuff, um, whether it's like ideologies and all of these things. But over the next hundreds of years, or the next hundred years, we are going to figure out how to um, basically reprogram ourselves to a large degree. And that is just going to break a lot of philosophical concepts. Like, even the philosophical conception of human equality, right, is wanting to be challenged. Uh, just, um, like much more explicitly um, kind of differentiate between, you know, the idea of uh, moral equality in that everyone has a worth and like that everyone um, having the ability to have good experiences is uh, something that's inherently valuable for a humanity to shoot for um, from, you know, like claims about uh, kind of like specific uh, kind of physical or kind of, you know, mental uh, mental similarity between different people, and just kind of philosophically navigating that well, um, and creating a world that uh, kind of gets uh, you know the good properties of out um, out of all that, um, while uh, I don't know at the um, at the same time just preserving this uh, really important idea that we're trying to create a world where everyone can feel empowered and feel and uh, you know, feel, feel good, um, essentially, uh, still continues. Uh, so that will be, um, interesting. One thing that I think that I'm not worried about is, um, second, or well, one thing that I think will happen that, but that I'm not worried about is the second order social and cultural effects of longevity. The longevity in particular, I think is one of those uh, things that like, it will cause changes and that uh, it will lead to, you know, the world population just like totally not fitting in with um you know standard development experts predictions and they'll be like wait wtf why are there 17 billion people in the world in 2100 our charts showed that there should have been uh, like 7 billion um but um then look the reality is that that the change is just gonna happen slowly enough just in here because people already age at a maximum of one year per year that uh, we will be able to adapt I can't wait for the meme army to take on people age at an average of one year per year and see what they do, see what they do with that. You mentioned the P word, privacy, one of my favorite and most troubling topics. And you said that our relationship with privacy is going to change, and that's a scary one. Scary is a very polite way of saying how terrifying it is. And that's why I had to stop watching Black Mirror because it became too real. And unfortunately, I wish I was more optimistic, but it does seem like the object is in motion and it's going to stay in motion. Do you see any ways to combat that momentum? One possibility is that more of our life moves into the virtual sphere. And thanks to things like encryption and zero-knowledge proofs and all of these cryptographic technologies, the virtual sphere will like, continue to be uh, fairly free of snooping. 
uh, and or at least have a kind of less significantly less snooping than the than the physical world does. Uh, so that would be a kind of short and medium term mitigation uh, to uh, not having any privacy at all. I now have a pretty good idea of what your life in 3021 is going to look like. And it sounds pretty great. And again, I hope to, I plan on being there with you between now and then the near future. What do you think of like the next one to 10 years and what specifically, what do you think or what do you have confidence in that most people would say is crazy? Um, okay. So I think um, in the medium term future, uh, 2020 will be remembered as a nadir. So as a bottom point for probably U.S. and uh, global, uh, just like political culture and uh, people's ability to uh, get uh, get along with each other at large scales. And basically from here, things are only slowly going to start to improve. Um, I expect that we're going to see just a lot of uh, kind of different positive trends that uh, kind of start coming out and uh, getting stronger over the next decade or so. Like one of the trends that I'm personally kind of excited about that a lot of people aren't following well is just this notion of uh, kind of the techno progressive political conscience. Like just this idea that um, you know the large humanitarian gains that can come from uh, basically you know things like longevity research um, and drones and uh, just building better cities and space travel and all of these things really can do a lot to kind of like uplift people's lives and, and uh, people's, make people's lives much better. What other things uh, to be optimistic about? Um, hmm. The rise, the rise of uh, uh, the thing that economists call like taboo competition, or like, however um, uh, they pronounce the person's name. Just like this idea that um, you know, if you if you're not happy with the jurisdiction you're in, you actually can go and move to another one. That's um, like we have, we've been we've been seeing a kind of the rise of uh, that in uh, kind of you know. 2020 and 2021 kind of slowly uh so that in you know there's already more and more of these governments that are just issuing kind of digital nomad visas um there's a lot of people um just even within um in dual country is like i know if like francis make this be the city of cool tech and if you want to come here then uh, you know you should come here uh and just like Essentially, jurisdictions, this kind of somewhat market-like actor, and they're kind of hopefully just pushing each other, to, uh, competing with each other too, and uh, making each other better. This is um, one of those uh, things that I'm definitely, you know, cautiously optimist, uh, optimistic about that good things come out of this. Um, what else? Uh, there's uh, like in general, like basically, people who are stuck in uh, bad jurisdictions should not be stuck, uh, and uh, this is uh, one of those things that uh, I uh, I hope we can find a way to get past. Um, global poverty reduction, I think, uh, kind of mainstream narratives really don't uh, properly um, appreciate the extent to which places like Africa are just continuing to um, have quickly growing economies. Economies. Um, and like I've been following more and more people from uh, 
Africa on, on uh, Twitter. And there's like a very just kind of strong and positive, like positive, optimistic feeling among, among the business community that uh, I really like, and, and among other kind of culture, you know, uh, generally kind of cultural like, and figures that I really like. Um, it's just, you know, there's uh, Africa doesn't uh, really have uh, that much of a recent past. You know, like it's basically just a lot of colonization and slavery. The present, the present is getting uh, better, but still not, but still far from perfect. Another thing, uh, also just the small countries. Uh, so like small countries are uh, just a category that I think did really well um, in uh, 2020, right? Like I think maybe in 2019, the way that it seemed was that we were just kind of moving toward more and more domination by this like large powers and like, you know, it basically be the US and China and maybe the EU um, just sort of having a larger and larger influence on the world to the extent exception of uh, everyone else. Uh, but in 2020, like we were just seeing a lot of small countries did really uh, a really good job handling COVID. Um, a lot of small countries are doing a really good job of just having healthy internal political cultures. A lot of small countries are doing a yeah, good job of like, just having better and better policies. Uh, so that's interesting. Like I think uh, a world with a more and kind of empowered small countries is uh, a world with uh, more choice and more uh, choice and more experimentation. I asked you to explain the future, and I did not specifically ask you to be optimistic or pessimistic. And all your responses were optimistic. So the fact that optimism was your default for what the future looks like gives me hope and puts a smile on my face. So here we are. And I think this is the longest I've ever gone without talking about China. So the time has come. The geopolitical climate is both increasingly and decreasingly affecting and affected by the tech world. And China's playing an increasing role every day, as we've discussed many times. One specific example of where this power and China power struggle and physical and digital technologies is emphasized is with Taiwan and the semiconductor industry. Generally curious for your thoughts on how important from a geopolitical perspective is it for Taiwan to remain Taiwan? And what happens from a technology perspective, from a privacy perspective, from an economic perspective, if China gets their way with Taiwan? My general kind of moral view, of course, is that kind of the, the focus of uh, the, those kinds of questions should be the welfare of people in Taiwan and not kind of, you know, bigger power games between like, you know, also much larger forces that um, have whatever kind of security interest. Uh, Security or political interests. Um, you know, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it, Taiwan itself has been doing really well. Like, it's. Uh, I I visited it many times. It's uh, got a very nice, got a nice democratic political culture. It's got Audrey Tong. She is uh, very amazing. Um, nice, uh, nice, nice crypto community. As well, I, I have to say this because unfortunately, it is my window to kind of every single part of uh, every single part of the world. Uh, so, and I think, uh, 
definitely, definitely very much wish that uh, that that Taiwan does well um, with. Um, but in terms of how that will intersect with all of these uh, kind of geopolitical things, I yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, this is one of those uh, areas that's uh, just very hard to uh, predict. Um, I am. Um, I have a feeling that like, I had this kind of optimistic feeling that uh, nothing uh, very terrible is going to happen there. Um, just because I feel like people are, like, as the world becomes more interconnected, like there's just going to be too many people that realize any kind of really serious conflict is just a negative sum game for everyone. We'll see. I mean, fingers crossed. And it seems like there is a growing skepticism or mainstream skepticism of China or concern that they're going to do X, Y, and Z. What do you think people are underestimating in regards to China? And what do you think people are overestimating in regards to China? Because, I mean, for context, you've spent a lot of time there. Do you speak Mandarin? I think you have a different perspective on it. I do think that people in the U.S. overestimate the extent to which they can uh, accomplish uh, what they think their objectives are by uh, going after Chinese tech companies specifically. Um, like, uh, basically... I think that you know, like if your strategy for the uh, scary things um, that uh, you know you're worried about Chinese tech companies uh, doing is is specifically to go after Chinese, uh, then like first of all, you're going to be very vulnerable to just anyone, any non-Chinese tech uh, uh, tech company or anyone from any other part of the world that uh, doing uh, uh, trying to do exactly the same thing, um, and like basically. You've uh, like essentially, I think my philosophy for cyber space specifically is that we need less going after lions and more armoring the sheep. Um, just because if you're going, the problem with going after lions is that when you go after lions, it's hard to um, incredibly convince the world that you're the one going after the lions and you're not the one being the lion. Um, and like in all, like, and the problem is that like the sort, of, the sort of entity and culture you need to become in order to like properly attack Chinese tech companies and other other disadvantages. Um, so could also be just kind of the libertarian in me speaking, where I just keep wanting to think that like the the important thing is not America versus China. The important thing is like tech companies versus statism everywhere, essentially. It, it, it's definitely true that like a lot of the conflicts, and even if it's a negative sum for humanity overall, is uh, good for crypto. Um, no, it, it's interesting how uh, conflicts uh, kind of uh, uh, can often end up uh, being uh, actually being good for the third party, right? Like there's, a, I remember when I was still in like, high school, there was this interesting puzzle um, about three people in a duel. Um, where it's like basically three people in the shooting duel that have like different levels of accuracy. A is more accurate than B is, and B is more accurate than C. Um, and the question is, who is the most likely to win the duel? And under a lot of like choices for rules and parameters, the answer is C. Um, and in fact, the answer is C to such an extent that if the rule says that, she, that C shoots first, then C's optimal first shot is to, shoot, is to shoot in the air to make sure he does not hit A or B the first time. And the reason why this is true is because a and B both know that A and B are each other's greatest threat. And so they're just going to uh, basically kill each other. And so C is the most likely to emerge as the winner. And we've seen most of the uh, mechanics uh, like this a lot of the time, right? So like 
one fun political example is that um, as of 2021, uh, Vietnam has won two wars with uh, the United States. The first war is the one in the 1960s and the 70s. And uh, the second example is that Vietnam is the winner of the uh, trade war between the US and China. Uh, so, and crypto is uh, definitely one of those things that's uh, well positioned to be uh, again, like this uh, sea that's uh, the winner of uh, great conflicts between whether it's like one state versus another state or states versus corporations. That actually, like what you're saying, kind of like triggers me to think of something I've been thinking about, which is January 2021, I think has been an unintentional ad for decentralization which is something we've talked about. I know I'm going to use the C word, but in that, like the first half of the month was an ad for decentralized communication apps, you know, with Trump getting kicked off everywhere, Signal and Telegram seeing record numbers, WhatsApp changing their privacy settings. And the second half of the month could not have been a better advertisement for decentralized finance. You're like, wow. But it was also a head fake in that you see AOC, you see Ted Cruz, all agreeing and getting riled up and you're just like, wow, everyone's going to be so focused on the wrong thing right now. Like everyone's going to be focused on the lion of Robin Hood, the financial systems, hedge funds, and DeFi is the sheep here. No, the, January 2021 was definitely a kind of very interesting uh, kind of curveball bag balancing back and forth month. Like, especially in terms of just like the narrative around censorship, right? Like uh, in the wake of the uh, social media responses to uh, the, you know, the... The, the lovely Viking LARP that you guys had over in DC. The, um, like basically a lot of people were, uh, you know, booted off of social media and there was this kind of big um, uproar around uh, hate speech and all of these things. And like it was definitely in a lot of ways like the most pro-censorship moment uh, kind of in culture for at least like the last uh, couple of decades. And in a lot of ways that, like, that really worried me, right? Like uh, and you even saw, you know, the response from outside. The response from outside the U.S. was uh, very worried. But like you saw, um, Alexei Navalny, the uh, the Russian uh, kind of opposition politician, basically, you know, like said, you know, like, hey guys, you're making a bad precedent here. And even uh, people from Europe were um, concerned. Well, you know, well, people in like places in Europe do have uh, kind of government-imposed uh, uh, restrictions on uh, free speech, like you know, like. Germany has, um, you know, the uh, anti-Nazi laws and all that, but they're very concerned about this idea of, like, basically a private corporation kind of enforcing speech restrictions for, and ultimately bigger than the country, just the, the world in some sense. Um, so, but at the same time, like, you know, within the U.S., like, the, there was definitely this kind of dominant mood, I thought, that, uh, you know, these things are necessary and like actually yeah, you know the free speech thing is kind of overrated and then two weeks later uh the yeah, wall street bets uh, discord server got like taken down from hate for hate speech and it's like wait a minute this stuff can actually get abused uh so yeah that was a uh, an interesting uh, kind of one punch uh, two punch curveball that everyone got and in terms of what i think will happen i think uh, kind of the uh Cat is definitely out of the bag in terms of centralized entities uh, being pressured to censor people and just um, generally kind of kick people off of off of their uh, platforms if they're doing things uh, that that they don't like. You know, so I see the trend going forward as like just being uh, both uh, the uh, 
centralized services uh, kind of needing to uh, or being pressured to kind of go after people and uh, people trying to uh, create these some alternatives to centralized services on the other hand and they're just being a complicated interplay between these two things and that's uh, going to be one of the big dynamics of uh, the next couple of decades uh, so we'll see Vitalik you make me laugh you make me smile you expand my brain thank you this has been so fun thank you Morgan this has been fun You've been listening to the NFX podcast. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to the NFX podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information on building iconic technology companies, visit nfx.com.